Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to ShiftingCulturePodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each week. And then go leave a rating and review. It's easy, it only takes a second, and it helps us find new listeners to the show. Just go to the show page on the app that you're using right now and hit five stars. It really is that easy. So thank you so much for doing that. Previous guests on the show have included Michael Frost, Alan Hirsch, and Hugh Halter. You could go back, listen to those episodes, and more. But today's guest is J.R. Woodward. This is part two of our conversation with J.R. around his book, The Scandal of Leadership, Part one sets up temptation, mimetic desire, identity, and imitation. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and listen to that first one. J.R. Woodward has been passionately planting churches on the East and West Coast that value tight-knit community, life-forming discipleship, locally rooted presence, and boundary-crossing mission for over 25 years. He's the author of Creating a Missional Culture, and co-author of The Church as Movement. He co-founded the Missio Alliance and currently serves as the national director for the V3 church planting movement. His latest book is The Scandal of Leadership. In this episode, J.R. gives examples of mimetic rivalry, true humility, emptying ourselves, and he tells us how to follow the scandalous way of Christ. He goes deep into the book of Philippians and into the story of Oscar Romero to help ground us in the reality of how the powers and principalities play a part in creating scandals of leadership and how imitating Christ helps us lead in a way of the kingdom. So join us as we look at models for us to follow so that we can construct our identity on Christ. Here is part two of my conversation with J.R. Woodward. Well, if you're thinking about transcendency, and I think a lot of times now in this age that we live in, we find transcendency through ourselves, um, through our inner genius, uh, what we we know, um, or our inner desires. Like I could find my true artistry of this is yeah. who I am on the inside. This is what I love and what I desire. And so as I become that, I find my true identity and I get... Mm true transcendent. This is what the world says. And I think a lot of Christians are moving in that direction and saying, 
because God has created my desires and love, if I desire and love something and become like that, that's who I truly am. What would Mm. you say Mm. to that? And do we need something coming from the outside of ourselves for transcendence and transformation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I I think if we don't understand the ubiquity of the fall in its totality, it's not just fallen human beings, which we see obviously with Adam and Eve, but the second fall we see is the fall of angels in Genesis 6. Uh, and, And then the third fall we see is the fall of nations. What we see in the count of Genesis is like everything is fallen. Uh, it started with people and it ended in all of these things, institution, and, and, and all of even creation groans to be released from this bondage. If we don't understand the totality, and again, not able to name and unmask the powers that are work, Romans kind of talks about, you know, the, the, the world trying to squeeze us into its mold, you know, 24-7, that's the world that we live in. The kingdom of God is quite different. Now, I think one is, you know, we have to ask, what is our supreme desire? And where do we find our ultimate sense of identity? Um, and and, and I, maybe I'd like to go uh, with that to kind of, a, I, I do, the last couple of chapters, I do a look at Philippians from like a Jordanian point of view. And if you look at the book of Philippians, it's pretty instructive. But there, there was obviously uh, a lot of reasons why Paul probably wrote the letter. There was division in the church. There was, you know, some issues. And so, and, and in fact, what what most commentators would talk about is like you have Yudi and Syntyche, who are leaders, probably co-founders with Paul in chapter 4-1, who were at odds with each other. Uh, everybody kind of tries to talk about what, what were they fighting about, right? I don't know that it even matters because like what happens... Uh, and, and this kind of speaks to this mimetic desire. Like, I think they were in mimetic rivalry with each other, and it could have been very innocent because uh, there, there's one thing to kind of uh, imitate someone's desire for an object. But what is kind of what Gerard calls metaphysical desire is when we want the very being of the other person, at least as we apprehend them. And so if you think about Yudin Syndicate, let's just say that one just wants to be the best leader. Uh, maybe a seemingly innocent desire. Uh, uh, then the other one, because they're close in proximity, desires the same thing. Often these are hid to us. Well, like it's kind of hard to have two best leaders. So maybe they're in this rivalry, kind of unknown to them. I mean, in, in fact, it doesn't really matter what the dispute is about because it's ultimately, you know, the, something deeper, the, the very being of the other person. So what happens in this kind of mimetic rivalry and that kind of moving toward this mimetic crisis is, uh, you know, Jard uses another term called uh, mimetic doubles and monstrous doubles. And what happens when we're in mimetic rivalry with someone is like we can't take their eyes on them and we start to mimic both their emotions and their actions as we're caught up in this mimetic cycle. And so what does Paul do? I plead with you, Utica. I plead with you, Syntica, you know, to be of the same mind. He separates them because they had become doubles. And then, uh, and he uses the same words there that he uses in Philippians 2 when he's speaking to the congregation, which are divided, likely because their leaders are divided and they're imitating the desires of their leaders. Doesn't make, you know, I think we can see this is a fairly common <laughs> thing that happens in churches and any organization. And so what does he do? What's his remedy? If you look at the whole book of Philippians, I, I think it's a book about positive and, and negative models. You know, he first starts with, uh, I mean, he, he kind of talks about prayer and about the kingdom and a little bit of uh, update on his own life. And, and and by the way, he uh, 
he he was loving the very people who threw him in prison and praying for them, uh, even though they were, you know, continuing to kind of wreak havoc on his life and at the, the threat of death, you know, still bursting out in love. He was living on a very different domain than most of us can probably comprehend and understand. And what does he do? He says, he starts off with giving Jesus as the arch model, you know, have this mind, the mind of Christ. And then he kind of goes and talks about this canonic journey that Jesus took. We'll come back to that. But then he uses Epaphrodites as someone who is willing to sacrifice his life. He talks about Timothy. I don't have anybody like him, right, uh, that really seeks your best. And so he's he's kind of just giving multiple positive examples. Then he gives a negative example of these, uh, you know, what you call Judaizers who were trying to use circumcision as like, you know, to make them like first class, you know, people and every, look down their noses at everybody else. You know, it was kind of like, creating a rivalry type of thing, like we're better than you, so desire what we desire to get circumcised. What does Paul do? He finally kind of lifts himself up in an example. And before I kind of talk about how he does that, I think it's interesting to know that in Philippi, the greatest commodity in that in that city, uh, which was a part of a Roman colony, was honor. If you had money, you use it to buy honor. You know, it was the highest commodity. And, and, and we see, they, they found, uh, archaeologists have found like 7,000 kind of uh, tablets of inscriptions where people used to kind of honor themselves and their household. Uh, and, and there was a, a particular way that they wrote this out because of the time that it was in. They first started with the ascribed honor that they had. This would be something that was unearned. It was just like the honor and privilege that you happened to be born into. Uh, you know, in that day, there was like the elite class and the non-elite class. There was no crossing that chasm, no matter how much you achieved. Uh, but they they actually had very concrete steps of growing in honor. There was a, a discipleship on how to grow in honor, whether you were part of the elite or non-elite, you know, you could kind of make some steps. But it started with this ascribed honor because, you know, for a majority of their world, that was the most important honor because it's it can't really be taken away. It's kind of just given to you. But the second was achieved honor. And, and that's kind of, you know, the steps that you could take to move a little bit further in the honor area. <laughs> what Paul did then is he's kind of, I think, showing his example of kenosis, like uh, that uh, we didn't really go through yet. But uh, I, I think uh, he was, he started off with his ascribed honor. Right. I, I was I was circumcised on the eighth day. You think, you know, that's something big about your circumcision? Eighth day. Like I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was like, uh, you know, an Israelite. And, and then he moves into his achieved honor, like as with the law, you know, uh, faultless uh, Pharisee uh, of Pharisees. And if with the church, you know, I was, I was killing people. It's like uh, everything that he's naming there is what gave him in his Jewishness a, a great sense of honor. And, and he received that socially, right? Because he had these qualities, people look up to him. And what did he say? I consider all of that garbage compared to knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection and fellowship of his suffering. In other words, I think what Paul, in order to kind of live in the domain of grace and and, uh, and, and he, he had a whole new way of constructing his sense of identity. And it was not the way that he was taught growing up. It wasn't through even his good Jewish uh, social, you know, uh, keeping. No, it was only found through knowing Christ uh, and, and, and found in Christ, you could say. And so I, you know, so then we have to go back to Christ. You're like, how did Christ 
get his sense of identity. Like this is what we see. Like he was God, but didn't consider God something to be grasped or didn't exploit his status. Uh, he refused to exploit his status. We're always trying to find ways to buffer up our status through titles and whatever. That's why J Jesus says it's dangerous to to be you know, hanging on your title in a uh, in a unhelpful way. I mean, we're not going to get away from using titles. I don't think there's, I you know, I'm not kind of the problem with that. I just think it's when we find our sense of significance through it is what he was more speaking to. But here he was, God, and didn't, didn't exploit his status. And then he emptied himself, becoming a human, not just a human, but becoming a slave. He becomes basically the lowest status uh, in Philippi. They were hearing this, they're saying like, what? Like, you're you're moving the wrong direction. <laughs> you know? you're, you're God and you're like, becoming a slave like you know that's not what we've been instructed to do that's not how we've been you know uh trained um and so he empties himself which is the opposite of being full of yourself right in other words being full of ourselves is having a sense of self-importance where we exalt ourselves above others often based on our ascribed and achieved status and so we need a whole new approach of constructing our sense of identity which is probably why paul said i have to die daily it's not a one-time thing and then the, the third thing is this revolutionary humble obedience where Jesus says that he was obedient even to the point of death. And I think, you know, we see Jesus' obedience not just in washing the disciples' feet, which is probably a good clue whether we're humble or not as leaders, whether we can do acts that are similar to that in our day, which is very meaning to humble ourselves. Uh, but it's also he, he had the willingness to give a prophetic call to people and challenge the establishment. That that was just as much obedience to God. In fact, that was what ultimately drove him to the cross. And so his humility was simply to answer the call of God, whether it was becoming the least. And by the way, you know, some translation he said he became nobody. And I thought about like, that's what we're supposed to become, a nobody? That feels weird. No, I don't think it's a nobody in the sense of that you have no value or no worth. But your value and your worth is completely determined by a different system in the kingdom of God than the kingdom of this world. And we are molded in a nice Christian culture by the kingdoms of this world without knowing it. And we have to become a nobody in that system in order then God can make us a somebody in his system. You mentioned uh, in in all of that, which is fantastic. And that's a, a deep dive. I'd love for people to to go and read Philippians do a study yeah. of Philippians, look at mimetic rivalry, look at status, look at what it takes to have your identity rooted in Christ alone as you move forward as a good example of leadership. But in that, you mentioned kenosis and, and kenotic spirituality. What do you mean by that? Do you have a good example of kenotic spirituality in the world? Well, you know, so uh, I think, first of all, you know, the word kenosis is is you know, literally kind of a self-emptying. Um, and, and we kind of see that with Jesus, like he, it's a letting go. First of all, he was refusing to use his status, you know, in an unhelpful way. That's the first part of the canonic journey. So we have to be able to refuse to exploit our status. You know, let's speak to us as leaders. As leaders, we all have some status. The temptation is to use that status to get done what we want to get done. Anytime I've done that, I regret it. As soon as I do it, <laughs> it doesn't and, work. <laughs> and, and, and we're we're just about trained. You know, the leadership of this world 
is training us to be domineering over people. Like, you're supposed to be in control. You're supposed to dominate. Jesus kind of like, no, that's not the way it is in the kingdom. So we have to refuse to exploit our status. That's the first part of the journey. And then we have to regularly empty ourselves. And again, I, I think it's of this sense of self-importance. Again, when we have status, think about Jesus, like he's God in the flesh. <laughs> and yet, like, what showed his humility? He could connect with the person that considered the lowest status. And in fact, that's what he identified as. There was nobody he that could not identify with him. The poor listened to him greatly. It was the people who have a lot of rich religious status that had a lot to lose in going into the kingdom of God, which he admonished. And so there's an emptying of ourselves, uh, our own sense of self-importance, and holding on to the way that we have been taught to get our status through our either ascribed privilege or our achieved privilege. That's, that is... When I talk about it, that, that is a difficult journey. You know, it's kind of like saying like, hey, like I went and I got a PhD. Like I want to, you know, use that status to my advantage. It, why not? Like I earned it. <laughs> well, the moment I kind of put uh, an emphasis on that and try to see that as my sense of identity is the moment that kind of I, I, I am not emptying myself, but I, I'm actually you know, raising my sense of importance by something I did. And I think that's what I have to empty myself of. I actually have to think about any accomplishments that maybe got me to wherever happened to be in other people's view of status. Like I have to empty myself of all of that. That is not the way I'm going to get my sense of worth and my value. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a daily thing. There's an emptying of ourselves, and then there's kind of that you know, revolutionary, humble obedience. I think like, uh, so we saw what that looked like for Paul, right? He, he, everything that gave him status in the Jewish world, he said like, forget about it, it's all garbage. <laughs> like only knowing Christ, that's what's the most important. And uh, I think like, it's, it's easy for me to think, you know, Paul, yeah, he's like 2000 years away. Like, can we really take this example of Jesus even being obedient to the point of death as that's my calling? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Is that really for me? Well, I think like I, I examine in the book, like I, I feel like a more recent example, uh, a guy named by the name of Oscar Romero, who happened to be a Catholic because he grew up in El Salvador, which like 70% of the country is Catholic. So it's probably, you know, part of his ascribed <laughs> uh, journey. <laughs> and uh, he, he kind of grew up in a fairly poor neighborhood, and uh, probably at the age of 13, he knew he wanted to be a priest. And uh, just to give a quick element of his journey, uh, so he was actually started this high school, which is like really training to bring him into the priesthood. Then he went to Rome for his education, was going to, after his master's, was going to get a PhD, but World War II broke out. And so he had to, was called back to El Salvador by his bishop. And the next stage of his life, what he was building a lot of status amongst his peers. He had control of their journals and a lot of the writing that was very influential. And so he was kind of looked up to and probably didn't use his power in the best of ways at times from what we see, both in his own admittance and the minutes of other people. And he gets uh, elevated to, you know, like uh, a bishop. He, he then, uh, after 20 years of kind of being more in the 
theological realm and writing, he kind of moves to pastoring and, uh, again. And he goes back to a context of very similar to the place he was uh, with a lot of poor people. And in El Salvador at the time, you know, the, the government was pretty much ruled by the oligarchy, like these 14 families that pretty much dictated what the government was going to do. And they didn't want the peasants to get their land and all of that. So the peasants were trying to fight against that. There were base communities developed by some of the Jesuits priests who are trying to help people understand the kingdom of God now and how that meant was to meant to be something that they can live into now. And so they're teaching about the social political realities that were broken and fallen and how we need to kind of redeem those. And and so within that, like there was uprisings and killings and that happened, you know, even in his own area there. And so as I think as he was kind of connected to the people and the poor in particular, he started to kind of see and name these powers, namely through the oligarchy and the government that were oppressing these people. And he began to empathize with them in a way that he hadn't previously. I think he he had a little bit of concern in, about these base communities that were developing, in fact. Um, and it just so happens that the, the archbishop of, uh, of the capital city of El Salvador, San Salvador, was going to be retiring and and they were going to name a new archbishop. Most people thought it was the person who was kind of right under him, that he was kind of, you know, developing for that role. Um, but the oligarchy and political elements, because in, in especially in that country, you know, they, they, they kind of work very closely, the religious and political, much like, you know, we, we, our political people have to somehow talk about God, even though, that conception of God is very different than the one I read about often. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they 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 did not want that other guy because he he was uh, the the current archbishop and his uh, you know potential predecessor was more uh, kind of sympathizing with these uh, with the poor and the and, and and so forth. And so they didn't want that to kind of take rest. So they actually chose Oscar Romero because they thought he was a safe bet and he was going to protect the status quo. But they didn't realize the transformation that he was having in his local place. So he becomes archbishop. And here's what happened. So here is like the most powerful religious position in his whole country. He had a high, high status. Uh, he had, you know, probably a nice really place to live in. He chose not to live there. He chose to live in this small little room uh, that the nuns built for him. Uh, off of this, uh, that was part of a, a, a hospital for the terminally ill. Someone would offer him uh, a house and cars, and he would refuse that. He let go of kind of his status. He did not use his status uh, for his own advantage. He he had to let go of some of his connections to power until they kind of were willing to repent and acknowledge. He had to kind of, doesn't mean he didn't stay connected and, and still love them, but he couldn't kind of be in the same level of connection with them as he was before. He had to let go of a lot of different things. That's part of this kenosis that he was going through. Uh, and and so I, I, that's how I see that. And then, then we see kind of his humble, revolutionary humble obedience in this. Uh, not only did he identify with like those who were killed, but like about I think it's like 17 days after he was appointed archbishop, uh, one of his very close priest friends, one of probably the closest people in his life he was seminary with, 
um, who was doing these base communities, you know, as a Jesuit priest, probably multiplied dozens of them. And he knew that this guy was a genuine thing. Some of these base communities might have been off on the Marxism and caught up in ideology, but this guy was doing them in a proper way and really honoring Christ through it. And the government uh, basically had him, well, you know, the, the thought was that they were assassinated. Him, this older guy, and this teenager. And this upset Oscar so much that he did something that wasn't characterization of him. Like he was a fairly timid guy, uh, afraid of what people will think. And uh, he had his bishops and he's an archbishop. And so what he decided to do is like have one large public mathering of all of the different, uh, you know, one big mass uh, where he wanted all the churches to gather together. And he spoke uh, about the, the, these, you know, these uh, uh, assassinations. And he was holding the government, you know, and unless you do a proper investigation of this, I'm not going to be coming to the next presidential uh, ceremony when the next president was going to be inducted, because usually the bishop, was, archbishop was there to bless that, right? Uh, he was going to refuse to do that. Some of his own bishops said, like, you're just politicizing this. And he said, well, since when has it not become been political? <laughs> you know? And so he, uh, even at the apprehension of his own bishops, he refused to go to that. Again, it was a part of his kenosis and journey. That would have been a place of honor. You know, maybe we would, you know, think about, oh, what a privilege to pray, you know, before the inauguration of the president. Like, no, nah, that's nothing to me. I'm not getting my sense of status like, in fact, if you guys don't do the proper thing here, I'm not going to show up. And then, you know, that's that was now this wasn't taken easy. So what he also did then is he started because the, the government was pounding the people. They were torturing them. They were imprisoning them and killing them uh, as they're just seeking to kind of live into, uh, you know, have land and, and live into like the, the, the kingdom realities. Um, and so what he started to do is like he, he would, the church, he used the church, the institution of the church. It wasn't look, looking out for itself, but it was looking out for the kingdom and particularly the poor and the oppressed. And he, he, he had them come and report any atrocities that were taking place. And then what he would do every week before he gave the homily, he would name, uh, the, imp the wrongly imprisoned, the, the, you know, the, the tortured, uh, the, the the people who were killed and assassinated. And obviously, and, and he had a radio broadcast. So this was broadcast throughout the whole country. And in fact, his broadcast was listened to by more people than who were listening to soccer or football in their context. That tells you something. <laughs> you could go through any village and you wouldn't miss a beat because it would be coming out of every window and every car door and, and you would get the whole thing. And it was because he was naming and unmasking the powers that work and principally through the oligarchy and the political system. This wasn't like a lot of his bishops had a hard time with this. It got to the point where you can't do that too long before you realize that they're going to come after you as well. Uh, they first sometimes tried to silence the radio broadcast by bombing them uh, on occasion, but they, they kept on preaching and repaired them. And then eventually... Um, you know, he, he gave this one last, I, I, I actually want to kind of read to you this little part if I could find it, but it's kind of his uh, last sermon that he gave uh, the next day while he was breaking bread at that terminal hospital, someone 
shot, uh, shot him and killed him as he's breaking bread, as he's doing communion, as he's doing the Eucharist. Uh, and, and, and part of that is kind of what, you know, essentially what he said. He says, this was his kind of final homily, the Sunday before he was assassinated. He says, brothers, you are part of our people and you will kill your very own poor brothers and sisters. He's talking to the, the army that's, all of them are pretty much Catholic. You know? So whether the army or not. And uh, before the human command to kill, the divine command shall prevail. Thou shalt not kill. No soldier is obligated to obey an order contrary to the law of God. No one has to follow an immoral law. It is time that you came to your senses and obey your consciences rather than sinful commands. The church, the defender of the rights of God, the law of God, human rights, and the dignity of each person cannot remain silent in the face of such abominations. We want the government to take seriously the fact that reforms stained with so much blood are worthless. In the name of God, and in the name of the suffering people who have suffered so much and whose lament cry out to heaven with greater intensity each day, I implore you, I beg you, I order you in the name of God, stop the oppression. Obviously, not a message that the political elites were happy about. Uh, I, I think like he was willing to be obedient, even to the point of that he knew his life had a timeline. In fact, because uh, he had someone, uh, a driver drive him around, I guess he kept that part right there, maybe he had bad eyesight or something. He was an old, older guy. Uh, he asked him not to drive him around like two weeks before he was assassinated because he knew that they were coming for him. And in fact, I think one or two weeks before he was assassinated, he did a interview with one of the, the papers, one of the few papers that wasn't owned by the oligarchy. And here's what he said in the interview. And I, I kind of close with this because it kind of speaks to, again, he refused to use his status as archbishop. He emptied himself regularly, meaning he, he you know, did away with all the things that he could have done. Um, he wasn't building his sense of self uh, based on the way the world was. He was willing to name and unmask the powers, knowing that it was kind of, that that obedience was going to potentially land him in his own kind of cross, if you will. And here's his interview maybe a couple weeks before, two weeks before his death. He says, I have frequently been threatened with death. I must say that as a Christian, I do not believe in death, but in the resurrection. If they kill me, I will rise again in the people of El Salvador. I am not boasting. I say it with the greatest humility. As a pastor, I am bound by divine command to give my life for those whom I love. And that includes all Salvadorians, even those who are going to kill me. If they manage to carry out their threats, I shall be offering my blood for the redemption and resurrection of El Salvador. Martyrdom is a grace from God that I do not believe I have earned. But if God accepts the sacrifice of my life, then may my blood be the seed of liberty and a sign of hope that will soon become a reality. May my death, if accepted by God, for the liberation of my people, uh, be for the liberation of my people and as a witness of hope in what is to come. You can tell them if they succeed in killing me that I pardon them and I bless those who may carry out the killing. But I wish they could realize that they are wasting their time. A bishop will die, but the church of God, the people will never die. That That's revolutionary, humble obedience. My friend, that is a canonic journey and it's a scandalous one and one that most of us are probably frightened to take. Huh, amen. That is an example of leadership and the, the leadership that we need to take as we align our desires to the desires of Christ, 
thank you for that great model of what it looks like that we can live into. And I think it's helpful to have models just as Paul and the and to the Philippians gave yep. models of what we want yep. to imitate. We have Christ, but it, it, it helps us as human leaders that are not divine, that we could have other humans that have actually gone through this canonic spirituality and journey of kenosis and emptying ourselves and having a desire towards Christ to be an example for us. So thank you for that. That's kind of where the battle is. And I, I think, uh, again, uh, to not imitate Christ is is to imitate the principalities in submission to the devil, and we will bear all the fruits of that. Yeah. I, I think that's why we all kind of remember John 3.16, right? Um, I, I like to remind us, <laughs> as we kind of get close to rolling out, I'm guessing here, uh, is there's also James 3.16, where he says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, envy is kind of a metal driver in a lot of ways, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. And and if you look at James, I, I examined James 3.1 through 4.10 with the help of Scott McKnight, and we see kind of that whole mimetic cycle happening in there. Um, we see the wrong-headed desires, you know, that they have in 4.1. Uh, and and by the way, James kind of ties all that to the demonic and Satan. Mm. JR, thank you for this book, The Scandal of Leadership. It is fantastic. It is a, it, it is a years-long journey of work to get this uh, on the page for us so we could dive deep into what it looks like to unmask the powers of domination in the church and in our own leadership so that we could rightly align our desires towards Christ so that the imitation of us and our desires with everyone around us will actually be towards Christ and not towards uh, the world or the evil one. Um, and so, yeah, deliver us uh, from evil is what uh, I want to pray here. And I would highly recommend this book. So go out and get the scandal of leadership. Uh, dive deep. Uh, if uh, you want to study more with a group, I'm sure JR has some good resources for you to study uh, with a group uh, and to, to help in that way. JR, how can people connect uh, with you, find out what uh, you're doing and get your book? Well, the book can kind of, you can get it anywhere, uh, you know, if you use Amazon or any bookstore. With bookstores, you probably have to order it, but it'll, it'll, it can come through any means. If you go to jrwilbur.com, like you can kind of find out any ways to connect. I am uh, trying to finish uh, a, I appreciate you kind of say a book, a book club, because I'm actually trying to finish a guide, a free guide that I want to put up on the book club that you can kind of, uh, you can actually go to the website now and ask for it. And so when it comes, it'll come out your way. So there's just, you know, uh, it's questions and stuff, just even how to have a book, a good book club, and then even potential questions that you can use uh, if uh, if you want. So I think that is good because I, I think for me, I'm not interested in, in, in really my bottom line isn't selling books as much as having people to read the whole book. Yeah. My, my goal is if I can get a thousand people to read the book, it will probably have legs of its own. And so book clubs and seminars are kind of my route to get things out. But yeah, you can go there um, if you want updates on what's happening in the book. You can sign up for that but or book club or um, book events that I, I'd be glad to speak with a book book club. What I want to do once we get the resource done is uh, actually try to make myself available to zoom in maybe one of the last meetings if it's a local book club or if it's a virtual one and just kind of be there to answer people's questions, uh, you know, 
related to what they've been reading. So that's that's kind of a way to try to make it personal and make some personal connections. So once that's kind of going, if you sign up for the book club, like you'll you'll be the first to hear about that. Excellent. Well, that's uh, really good. I think I think that this is something that we need to be talking about uh, with fellow leaders and with our churches, uh, so that we can be aware of what is happening, where the powers are coming from, the principalities, and what is actually steering us, and are we being steered in the wrong direction, or we being steered towards kingdom first uh, mentality? Yeah. So. So yeah, thank yeah. you, JR, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. It was fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show. And just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.